All right, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And we're going to be in Revelation 2, uh, 1 through 7. If you do not have a Bible, uh, we will get one to you. Robert has some in the back. We're using the Christian Standard Bible, CSB. Uh, if you would want to follow along, if you're using an app uh, or something like that, that's totally fine as well. As long as it's got the text there, it doesn't matter to me if it's on a screen or on a page. It's still the same Word of God. And so, uh, Revelation 2, 1 through 7. Let's read together. Uh, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and have endured hardships for the sake of my name and have not grown weary, but this I have against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent. And do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. And ask God to just open our hearts up. Lord, would you open your word up to us as we look at it? You know, I've uh, prepared notes and studied this and prepared to say the things that I think explain what this passage is about, what it means for us. Um, and Lord, I pray that if any of the things I've prepared to say, I don't need to say that you would just... Help me to just avoid saying those things. And if there's anything that I need to say that I haven't, haven't thought to say, that your spirit would guide me. And Lord, that your spirit would be at work as we hear. And you would give us ears to hear. For that is a gift from you. Ears to hear. To, to hear the word and to respond to it is a gift from you. Um, I just pray you would give us that gift. That you would help us to see what the spirit is saying. To Cross United Church. To us here in 2019. 2,000 plus years after this was written, Lord, it has something for us. And I just pray you would help us to, to hear it and to respond to it. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you could jump in a time machine or have some sort of way to see who you would be in 30 years, um, uh, what would you be like? What do you think you'd be like? And, and some, what, what did you say? Oh, I thought someone said. I thought someone said something. Anyway, um, I thought someone said dead. I was like, no. I was. Um, you don't know. You know, you could be. You know, it doesn't matter how old you are. God could give you the life. You, you know, thirty years from now, who could you be? Who will you be? What will you be like? I know personally. Um, I would be really curious to find out who I would be in thirty years. Um, and, um, and I think you would be too. Who, who are you going to be in 30 years? Well, we have this cool opportunity. We've been studying the book of Ephesians, and we've, we've studied how um, 
the, the church of, in, in the city of Ephesus got started. And they, these people, Paul and Priscilla and Aquila, they went in there and they, just, they were just normal people, but they preached the gospel and they shared Christ and people came to know Christ and became Christians. And they started this little gathering called a church and they rented out a lecture hall uh, there in the city of Ephesus, much like we rent out a fellowship hall here. And they, they were having church together and they were growing together. And then Paul's writing them the letter of of, that we call the book of Ephesians, and we've been studying that letter. And now we get to see sort of the epilogue of the story. 30 years later, Jesus himself speaks to this church. And, 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 and we get this cool opportunity to see the life of a church from its infancy and its maturity and as it's growing and as it's, it's been there now for quite some time. And, uh, and it's a warning to us, quite honestly. Because the last thing that Paul said to the Ephesians was that they needed to love Jesus with undying love. Ephesians 6.24 says, Grace be to all who love the Lord Jesus with undying love. And in Revelation 2, we see that they had fallen short of that call. Um, when I was in college, I took sort of a, they, they have this, I, they, they didn't really do this when I was in college, but I kind of did it anyway, sort of like a gap year, but it was between sophomore and junior year, and I was in a secular uh, college environment, but I took a year and I went to this Bible school in British Columbia, Canada, and I spent a whole year, nine months from you know September to May, just all we did was study the Bible, and we took, you know, classes in the morning and in the evening, and we read the Bible, and I was reading books about the Bible, and I was studying the Bible, and I was praying, and I was growing, and I was like, my faith was, was catching fire like it had never done before. And at the end of the year, they, they made this, these little yearbooks. And we, you know, like in high school, how you sign people's yearbooks, and you put your number, say, we're going to stay in touch, you know, be friends forever, and then you never talk to them again. And then so I would write, and whenever I wrote to someone, my last little phrase, like this sort of like cheeky little thing was my little conclusion. I said, don't lose the love, then in parentheses, Rev 2.4, Revelation 2.4. Because Jesus calls out the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, and the thing he tells them is that they have abandoned their first love. They've lost their first love. And I had been to summer camp enough times to know what happens after you've been on the spiritual mountaintop. And that is you descend into the spiritual valley. And that fire and passion for God and Christ can die away as quickly or even more quickly than it initially took root and began to flame up in your heart and your life. And for me, the most terrifying thought would be that Jesus would say the same thing to us and he would say the same thing to me and we'd say the same thing to our church in 30 years or in three years that we've abandoned our first love. This is the most terrifying thing I can think of, that this would be Jesus's word to me. And if you're, I think if you're in tune, with, in tune with anything the Bible says, that that is a terrifying thought to you too, that Jesus's verdict over your life was that you would abandon your first love, your love for him. We can't study the book of Ephesians without wrestling with this, this final word from Jesus himself 30 years after the book of Ephesians was written by Paul. If we look at the book of Ephesians, so these aren't going to be on the screen, but I just want you to 
just listen, 17 times, 17 verses, the word love is used in some form in the book of Ephesians. In love, God predestined us for adoption in chapter 1, verse 4. In God's beloved Son, He lavished grace upon us, 1, 6. The Ephesians should have love for all, have love for all the saints, Paul says in 1, verse 15. God made us spiritually alive because of His great love with which He loved us, 2, verse 4. Paul prays that the church would be rooted and grounded in love, chapter 3, verse 17. That they would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, chapter 3, verse 19. That they should bear with one another in love, verse 15 of chapter 4. That they should build up the church in love, chapter 4, verse 16. That they are beloved children of God, chapter 5, verse 1. They should walk in love as Christ loved them. Chapter 5, verse 2, that husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church, and husbands should love their wives as themselves. Chapter 5, verses 25 and 28 and 33, Tychicus is a beloved brother. We saw that last week, the principles of Christian friendship in chapter 6, verse 21 through 24. Paul blesses them with love from God, chapter 6, verse 23. And then this final word that I already mentioned, grace be with all who have undying love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And this last verse proved to be a prophetic word against the church because we know 30 years later that they had missed it. The, the book of Revelation, um, just to give you a little bit of background, a little bit of context, is, is probably the most uh, misunderstood book of the Bible. And people get really freaked out they either get really geeked out or really freaked out by the book of Revelation. They get freaked out because it's all this weird imagery and they're like, I can't understand it. I don't know what it means. Or they get really geeked out about it and they get all into like prophecy and fulfillment and all of this stuff. But very few people that I've seen actually interpret Revelation as it was originally intended to be interpreted. You see, it was written in the late first century, about 30 years after Paul wrote Ephesians in, in the early 60s AD, and then it was written in the not early 90s AD, and this is, you know, if you're not into dates, that's totally fine, but it's about 30 years. It's at the end of the apostolic era. So all these guys who had followed Jesus on earth, they have all died except for one, and that's John. He was young when he followed Jesus, late teens, early 20s, and he had followed Jesus and he had served Jesus for 60 years. He'd been following Jesus, walking with Jesus, worshiping Jesus, and ministering for Jesus. And at the end of his life, his reward for his service is exile to this little island in the Mediterranean Sea called the island of Patmos, where the emperor of Rome named Domitian had, had sent him, or the, 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 the rulers of Rome had sent him because Domitian was under, in, in a, um, an anti-Christian leader, an anti-Christian emperor, and he was persecuting the church. And so John's, at the end of his life, he's probably like 85 years old, or He's, in, he's definitely like in his 70s or 80s, and he's this, this man who's, on, who's served the Lord his whole life, who knew Jesus in person when he was young, and now he's on this island in exile. And Jesus appears to him. And Jesus appears to him. And Jesus tells him, I have some things I want you to tell my churches. One of those churches was Ephesus. Look at uh, Revelation 1, 10 through 11. 
I think it's going to be on the screen. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me. I'll move out of the way so you can read it. Like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Cyrus, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So there's these seven churches where John had apparently had a pastoral leadership role in some way. And so Jesus says, write on a scroll what you see and send it to them. So the book of Revelation wasn't initially this weird, mystical, like sci-fi novel. It was initially a letter from Jesus through John to these churches that were undergoing persecution. And we see the, John's vision of the risen Jesus. The next, next slide shows us who Jesus is. It says, I turned to see whose voice it was. It spoke to me, and I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze that is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. So John, John is on the island of Patmos. He's in exile. And Jesus shows up and says, I have something I want to share with my churches. I've, I have, I've, and and he, tells, he, tells them, he tells them to write these seven letters in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. And then he gives them this amazing vision of the things that are about to happen in Revelation 4 through 22. Not, um, not always easy to understand, for sure. But this was a, a book that was written, Revelation was written to real people like us, in real churches like this, in a, in a way that was intended to encourage them as they were undergoing persecution. And it starts with these seven letters in chapters two and three. Uh, some have sort of thought that these letters were like... Uh, symbolic of the time periods of church history, and that's, that's actually not probably the right interpretation because um, the last church is the, maybe the most famous is Laodicea, and Laodicea was known because it was lukewarm. It was neither hot nor cold, so Jesus would spit it out of his mouth, and some people say, oh, that's the church uh, in, in the modern era has gone, gotten so lukewarm. Well, that may be true in our context in some, some ways in some places, but that's not true in places like China or Africa or what's sometimes called the global south, where Christianity is white hot with passion and exploding uh, in places that, that we may not even even heard about, except maybe in a, like a geography book uh, somewhere. And so these seven letters, they're addressed to real people in real churches, and they have a lot to say to us, especially this first letter to the church of Ephesus, because Ephesus is, is an object lesson for us that you can know the truth and you can miss the point. You can know the truth and you can miss the point. Sorry, I, I, I use my phone for sermon notes and uh, I forgot to turn it into airplane mode and I'm like, I have like three group messages that are like, they, like man, now don't y'all know I'm preaching right now? Come on, leave me alone. <laughs> Um, it's like, boom, bing, bing. Anyway, so 
Um, if the first part of the sermon wasn't good, blame the people who have been texting me. And now let's get into the text, all right? Ephesians, or excuse me, Revelation 2, 1 through 7. And let's look at what it has to say to us first. Let's look at our powerful and present Messiah. Look at verse 1. Write to the angel in the church of Ephesus. The one, thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. What does that mean? What does it mean that this is one of those places where it's like, man, this is weird revelation, this weird imagery, but it gives you the key. He already gave you the key to understand it. Look at the verse before in chapter 1, verse 20. Chapter 1, verse... There we go. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand are, and of the seven golden lampstands is this. So it is a mystery. It's hard to understand if you don't know the key. Well, the key is this. The seven stars are the angels, the messengers of the seven churches, probably symbolic for the leaders of the church. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So when it says, go back to verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. When it says that Jesus holds the seven stars in his right hand, that means that he's holding the angels or the leaders of the churches in his right hand. In the Bible and in the ancient world, the right hand was the hand of power for the king. So what Jesus is saying is that he is the boss. He is in charge of the churches, that the leaders of the churches are subject to and answer to him. He is the chief shepherd, the senior pastor of all the churches. And every leader in every church will answer to him. I will answer to him. Our future elders, whoever, as God brings that, the leadership and coalesces the formal leadership of our church, will answer to him. He is powerful. He holds them in his right hand. But he isn't just powerful. He isn't just high and lifted up, barking orders you know, from, from the, the, the supervisor's chair. He is present as well. He walks among the lampstands. He's with us. He was with those churches, and he's with us. He's with us in South Florida, and he's here right now. I don't know what seat he's sitting in. I think he's probably in the front row, because that's where... You know, I bet Jesus sits in the front row, but Jesus, this is not just like a metaphor. This is not just like symbolic. This is not just like, oh, they'll, they'll all, you know, he'll always be with us kind of thing. No, he is present here right now by his spirit. And I know that's weird because we don't live in a world that treats that as the way things work. It treats what you can see as really real. But the reality is Jesus is more really here than this microphone is. Now, I'm going to be careful with this microphone because it's expensive, so I'm going to put it back. But just because I can touch it and see it does not mean it's more real than Christ who is present in the midst of his church. He is not here in a physical way, but he is actually here. So we should not just speak about him as he He's like, you, you know I can hear you. It's like, Lord Jesus, you are here. You are here right now as the powerful and present Christ. With us, over us, and for us. And he's with you in your life. He's not just a person you know about. He is a person you have a relationship with. Someone you can talk to. Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. The only reason we don't sing that 
from the bottom of our hearts all throughout the day is because we're so busy that we forget that we don't have it, but he does, and he is here with us. Jesus is here right now. The, the church in Ephesus, though, they had given into spiritual pride. They were a prominent church in a prominent city. So they were like the biggest church in town in sort of like the capital city. And they, they had gotten sort of this, this view of themselves that they were, they, they were theologically sound and they were doctrinally pure and they taught the Bible and they believed the truth and they fought against error and they didn't let false teaching infiltrate the church. And they, but they, in the midst of this, they'd forgotten that Jesus wasn't just a doctrine to believe, but a person to love. That he wasn't just a theology to think through, but someone who was there walking among them. Now, they'd gotten the truth right, and so that, that's, that's an example for us. The second thing we're going to see is that we need to hold on to the truth. Let's hold on to the truth. Let's hold on to what, what God has taught us in the Scripture, that, that love for Christ should never displace the truth of Christ. That passion for God, apart from truth, is just misplaced. Paul says in Romans 10, they have a zeal, talking about the, the Jewish people of his day, they have a zeal for God, a passion for God, but not according to knowledge. So you have to have truth, passion for Christ, passion for God, you know, wholehearted worship, you know, like, is not sufficient. It has to be based on truth. And the Ephesians had that. They'd gotten that right. Look at verses 2 and 3, and then again at verse 6. He says, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name and have not grown weary. And then in verse 6, and yet you do have this, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Something we don't think about, because God is love. That's true. John himself says that in 1 John 4, 7. God is love. God is merciful. God is kind. God is patient. But do you know that God is also holy, and he, there are things that God does not love, and in fact, he hates. And those are the things, the things that he hates are things that lie about who he is. This church was a stronghold against false teaching. They worked hard and endured. They, they had suffered through this persecution, and they had not betrayed the truth of the gospel. They believed in Christ. They believed that, that God had sent his one and only son to live a perfect life, to die a sinner's death on the cross, to be buried and to be raised from the dead. And they knew that the only way to the Father was through him. He was the way, the truth, and the life. They had not denied the exclusivity of Christ. They had believed in him wholeheartedly in the truth. And they had endured and they, they had persevered. And Jesus says, yes, I am so pleased with this, with your endurance. And as some of you, you're working hard. You are, you're working hard in your family. You're working hard in your job. You're serving in church. You know, maybe you're getting here early to set up or you're, you're, you're serving in kids uh, you know, once a month or you're working in music ministry. You're, you're doing hospitality and you're serving and you're working. And I just want you to know that Jesus knows, he sees, and it delights him. It delights his heart to see you working hard and serving him and enduring. 
Some of you doing in the midst of difficulty and pain when yet you're faithful. And this is a good thing. So it also noticed, it says they, they, they refuse to tolerate evil people. Now, our culture prizes tolerance. And I think tolerance is, in a sense, in society is important. Like, we have to be able to put up with people who don't believe the same thing as us. Like, I'm glad that people who don't believe what I believe aren't, like, subject to being executed for those beliefs. Because then as soon as the people in power don't believe what I believe, they can put me to death for my beliefs. So I think tolerance, there's some place for it in society, but there's no place for it in a church in regard to false teaching. One of the, one of the, little, the, little, the little things we say here that, that we really want to embed in the heart of this church is that this would always be a safe place for sinners. Because the only type of people there are are sinners. That, that sinners are welcome and they are accepted and loved because of what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. That it would always be a safe place for sinners, but that it would never be a safe place for sin. That we never let sin and, and, and outright wickedness and running away from the truth and running away from the gospel and running away from righteousness go unchecked. And, and I, I pray that he would make this a church, and he would make you a person who loves people enough to refuse to let them wallow in their wickedness. It sounds strange, but there is a type of hatred that God loves. He says they hate evil deeds. They hate evil teaching. They hate whoever these Nicolaitans are. If you ever want to find out how little biblical experts know sometime, do a search on the Nicolaitans because nobody really knows who they are. There's not much about them. They're mentioned here two times in Revelation 2, and we don't know much else about them. But what we do know is they had betrayed the truth, and they had betrayed the way of life that God had called people to. And the church at Ephesus said, no, no, this is not acceptable. And Jesus says, this is good for you to stand for righteousness and to stand for truth. They tested teachers according to God's word. They looked at what this person says. You know, I don't know, some, like we all, you know, were born from fairies. You know, the la when a, a baby laughed, that's where fairies come from. That's from, you know, a movie my kids watch. Now, it's funny, right? We don't believe that's true. But if, if someone came in the church and they start teaching, you know, like they're, they're in Bible study and they say, you know, you know, uh, that I watched It's a Wonderful Life, and you know every time a bell, wings, bell rings, an angel gets its wings. And you say, well, you know, I don't see that in the Bible. And you say, no, that's, that's not true. That's, that's fun and cute. It makes for a good Christmas movie, but it's not the truth. And that's obviously a silly example. But we test things according to the Scripture. In the 1500s, there were some people who started to do this. There was, at that time, there was, there were, Really just in, in Europe, there was one church. There was just one church. It was the, the Roman Catholic Church. And if you wanted to be part of the church, that's your op that was your option. It wasn't like today where there's like, 50, you know, it's not like, it's like buffet now. Like you can go any church you want to. But then that, that there was just one church. And some, some people were looking at what the church was teaching and what the church was doing. They're saying, no, 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 no. Like I'm reading the Bible and this is not, this is not what the Bible teaches. And, and this guy named Martin Luther said, I, I, I've got a problem with what's going on. This, this, we, need to, we need to reform the church against 
it, because it's not in line with the word of God. And um, that's why he was called a Protestant, because he was protesting against what was wrong with the church. Well, the church didn't want to change, and so now we have this other stream of Christianity called Protestant. Well, Protestant initially was based simply on dedication to the truth and what were called the five solas of the, of the Protestant Reformation. The sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, was the way that Christ ruled the church. Sola Fide, faith alone, was the only way we could be saved, not by our works. Sola Gratia, grace alone, is, is how we are saved, not as a reward for our works. Solus Christus, that Christ alone is the basis of our salvation. And Sola Deo Gloria, that the glory of the triune God alone is our goal. And the point of the world, and not to us, but to him, is the glory. And these are things worth fighting for and worth dying for, these truths of the Bible. And the church at Ephesus had gotten this right. And I pray we would always be this kind of church, and you would be this kind of person. But we can't miss out. Look what Jesus says in verses 4 and 5. That for all of this, there was a problem. So let's, like them, repent. And reclaim our lost love. I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. For all of this commendation. For all. It's like you know. When you, ha- you talk to someone or like you have a meeting with your boss or something and they, someone's saying, well, there, there's some good things and some bad things. And there's like the three good things, but then there's like this one devastating like, boom. And this is what's happening. For all that's good, there is a massive problem. And it was jeopardizing the church's soul. They'd mixed up their priorities. They'd abandoned their first love. And in this case, for them, what it was is they loved truth more than Christ. They, they loved being doctrinally pure more than they loved Jesus himself. There are many ways we can lose our first love. I want to talk to you about just a few. The, for example, we can love the work of the Lord more than the Lord of the work. We, we can, this, this, is the, this is losing our first love to the work of ministry. We can love serving the Lord so much that we miss him in the midst of it. And this happens to professional ministers and people who just serve in church, that they f- begin to find their identity and their worth and their Christian value in service. Now, don't get me wrong. We need to serve. Jesus sees it. And as I said just a minute ago, he, he, he knows and he loves that people are serving, but he does not want people to serve him and love that serving more than they love him himself. Another way we can lose our first love, we can love the word of the Lord more than the Lord of the word. We can, we can, on um, Tuesday night, we were having our men's Bible study that uh, we've started on Tuesday night, and we were talking about this and how this can be a danger and how it can be easy to study the word for its own sake, not as a way to get to Jesus. We can know all the background and we can know all the stuff. And if we miss Christ, what is the point? 
If we know all the truth and we have books of the Bible memorized and we know all the ologies and all the things and we miss Jesus, we have missed the point. So maybe these things, you know, Bible study or ministry, maybe those don't resonate with you. Maybe it's one of these next ones. Uh, you can love the, the truth of the Lord more than the Lord of the truth. That kind of is what I was just saying. Let's go to the next one after this. Uh, you can love the gifts of the Lord more than the Lord of the gifts, the blessings of the Lord more than the Lord of the blessings, and you can love the creation of the Lord more than the Lord of creation. That one got cut off on the bottom. This is any time you put something good and make it higher than God. You take a good thing and you make it a God thing. You love the gifts of the Lord. And God gives good gifts, doesn't he? He gives good gifts. He gives family and children. He gives things. He gives houses and he gives blessings of all untold measure. And we can get so caught up that we begin to love his gifts more than him himself. Anything in creation we can love. That, that's, this is the problem with idolatry. It's anything that's created and is put in front of the creator is an idol. And this means there are as many ways to be an idolater as there are people in the world and things in the world. You can worship like being on the boat more than Jesus, or you can, you can love your kids more than Jesus. You can love your wife or your husband more than Jesus. You can love nice cars more than Jesus. You can love uh, poetry more than Jesus. You can love guitars more than Jesus. I'm just looking around the room. You can love anything that's a created thing can become an idol, and that is the danger inherent in being a human in this world. We can put, and our heart is tended toward putting created things above the creator. Often it's relationships or material possessions, but it can be anything. We've lost our first love. And I wonder if, if you've lost your first love. Final one I'll talk about is loving the teaching of the world along with the teaching of the word. And this is so dangerous and so easy to fall into. Uh, one of the new resources I added on the resource table is this book called Hidden Worldviews. And this is a great little book. Um, it's, it's pretty, you know, uh, academic, like not academic, but very, uh, has some deep stuff in here. So it's not an easy read all the time, but it is brilliant and important because it talks about the ways false teaching enters our own, our own beliefs. It talks about individualism, and that is the, thing, the idea that I am the center of the universe. And that, that can so easily creep into our beliefs. It talks about consumerism, that, that we just needing to consume and buy and purchase and have more and more are what define us. It talks about nationalism, that, that our identity as a person of, of a specific country is what defines us. It talks about moral relativism or, or science uh, therapy, that the idea that God it's designed us simply to be healthy and happy. And yes, that is, that is good to be healthy and happy, but that is not God's ultimate best for you in this life. His ultimate best for you is that you would be holy like Christ. 
and healthy and happy might have to wait until you get to the other side of eternity. Have you lost your first love? It's so easy to do. And, and the reality is I wake up every morning and I have to remember and I have to repent and I have to redo. That's the three steps Jesus gives us. Remember, repent, redo. So I wake up every morning and my heart wants to worship things other than God. I wake up every morning and I want to love the gifts more than the giver. I want to love the word of the Lord more than the Lord of the word. I wake up every morning. I, you know what? I like reading the Bible. And I was funny the other day, Justin and Lauren, they, they live next door to us. And so the other day, uh, it was Memorial Day. And we were going to hang out with my parents in the afternoon. But uh, I, uh, in the morning, we, we, we didn't have anything going on. So we said, hey, why don't you come over? You can swim for a little bit. And um, I had my Bible out. And like the kids were just being a pain. And so I got my Bible out. And I'm like, hey, stop that, whatever. And, and Justin goes, he comes over. He goes, that's like, that's like real dad life. You know, you got your Bible open while you're yelling at your kids. You're like, please leave me alone. I'm trying to be like Jesus. Okay. <laughs> We're born every day. We're, we're, we're not born every day. We, we wake up every day with an inborn propensity to worship things that are not God and to lose our first love. You go to bed at night and you wake up in the morning and you lost your first love like you can't find your glasses on the nightstand or your phone. It's like, oh my gosh, where did my phone go? Is it under the pillow? Is it behind the nightstand? Where did it go? Every morning you've woken up you have lost your first love, and you, by the grace of God, need to go and claim Christ again, to remember, remember whatever that season was for you. Maybe it was when you first came to Christ. Maybe it was like a season in high school or like college when you were just on fire for Christ, when God's love was so real to you, when it was more important than anything else. There was a moment in time when that was true for you if you are a Christian. Remember that time, and it can be like that again. Remember and then repent. This means to do a spiritual U-turn, to turn away from your sinfulness and say, God, I am so sorry that I have let myself get to this point. I'm going to change by your grace, and your grace is enough. Redo, number three. Man, God is offering us, a, he offered the church at Ephesus a do-over. Over the course of 30 years, they had fallen into this cold orthodoxy where they knew the truth, but they forgot to love the Lord. And instead of just getting rid of them and saying, well, that's enough, gave you a chance, you got the book of Ephesians written to you, like Pastor Danny's favorite book in the whole Bible was written to you, and you still couldn't get it right. Well, he said, you know what? I know your frame, and I remember that you are dust. And as far as the east is from the west, so far will I remove your transgression from you. As high as the heavens are above the earth, and as a father shows compassion on his children, so I will show compassion to you if you will turn from your sin and trust in me yet again. God's offering you a do-over yet again to turn to him. And the reason I know that is because you're here right now, and you're hearing this, and it's not too late. Let's repent and reclaim that lost love. And then finally, let's run toward our reward. 
Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Notice it says anyone. Anyone who has ears to hear. You know who's part of anyone? Well, it's, it's anyone. Anyone who has ears to hear. Doesn't matter what, you, what sin you've fallen into. Doesn't matter what you did yesterday or last week. It doesn't matter what your backstory is. It doesn't matter what you're thinking about right now. Anyone who has ears to hear. Let anyone who has ears to hear can get in on this. Anyone can get in on this. Anyone, you and me included. Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. But it's interesting. Jesus is the one talking. But it says, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Here we see that Jesus' word and the Spirit's word are identical. That the Holy Spirit will never contradict what Jesus has said. He will never contradict or say something that doesn't align perfectly with the words of the Bible, that the Holy Spirit always works in and through the Scripture and not apart from or contrary to the Scripture. You can overcome. You can conquer. Victory is possible for you. Not because you can look in the mirror and say, I am a warrior, I am you know, strong, you know that that old. I think it was like, I think it was like an SNL sketch, and it's like he looks in the mirror and says, um, "I'm um, what is it? I, I'm smart, important, and doggone it, people like me, right?" It's not you can't work it up within yourself. You can overcome because Jesus says, John sixteen thirty three, "You will have trouble in this world, but I have overcome the world." The cross is sometimes called a tree. Jesus was hung on a tree. Maybe you've heard that before. And the reason Jesus was hung on a tree is because the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, when, when our first ancestors disobeyed, became a tree of curse and death. And so the tree of death on the hill of Calvary became for us a tree of life. Anyone who has ears to hear and conquers will eat from the tree of of life in the paradise of God. So my question to you is this. Will you listen? Will you listen? Will you hear what Jesus is saying to you? And I've got good news. The Ephesians did. We know they did. Because 20 years after Revelation was written, there was another letter written to the church in Ephesus. It was a man named Ignatius. He was one of the first pastors of the church after the apostles. And Ignatius was a man who ended up dying for his faith as a martyr. And he wrote a letter before he died to the church in Ephesus. After John had died, all the apostles had died. But we still have a copy of that letter. And he wrote to the church at Ephesus. And he said that they were known for their love. They heard and they responded. The question is, will you? Let's pray. Oh Lord, give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us in this moment. Lord, I don't, 
I don't know what everyone here needs to hear. I don't know um, exactly what they're dealing with. I don't, you could be speaking to them in a way I could never even imagine in, in the way your, your spirit's applying to this to their heart. But Lord, I just pray you would. I pray you would. May we turn from our sin and trust in you. Lord, some people here have never done that. Some here have never taken the step to turn away from their sin and to trust in Christ and to grab a hold of new life as a free gift, not of works, not of anything they do, but simply as a gift from you. That their life can be brand new today, that you're giving them that opportunity. And Lord, for all of us, you're giving us the opportunity for a do-over again, to remember, repent, reclaim our lost love. As we look to Christ, who died and conquered on our behalf. And in him, we are more than conquerors. Just thank you for the opportunity to hear your word and pray it would settle into our hearts as it did so long ago to that church in Ephesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.